Number 584 has just been announced as the invitation song tonight. Delighted we are to certainly mark that song and use that at the appropriate time later in the service this evening. It's so good, as already mentioned tonight. Cale did that just before the service began. Good to see everyone here. Hope each has had just a delightful day today, the opportunity to enjoy the life that God has given us, and certainly to gather again this evening to give thought to a section in the Word of God, to pray and to sing, and to engage in the other acts of worship that God has said that He wants. What is man? That, in fact, were three of the words found in Psalm 8, verse number 4. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers which thou hast made, the sun, the moon, in essence, noted there in verse number 3, and then the marvel of this next question, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. As David penned those words ages ago at this point, he asked a question that there are many in our world today still are unable to answer, still unable to in fact even offer much by way of helpfulness relative to it. This opening slide will be one that sets before us some of those basic ideas and leads us into the remainder of the lesson tonight. The composition of man. What is a human being? Now I realize I'm speaking before individuals who by and large already know the answer to this question. But there are so many in our world, in fact, the overwhelming majority have no idea. The assertions that are often made are utterly preposterous. They are absolutely absurd and in many ways are nonsensical because they fail to go to the place that has the answer to the question. You may notice just a few of the initial matters. <clears throat> may I offer to you again some information that it comes as no surprise, but there are philosophers, sociologists, and psychiatrists who now for thousands of years have pondered the matter of what is a human being? How do you define it? I'd offer that today the evolutionist, it seems, has much to say about it. Now, we know these are individuals who have little interest in and certainly no respect for what the Word of God would have to say, but look at this definition. According to the evolutionist, a human being is a composition of atoms subject to mutations and genetic variation that has developed beyond other animals. And that's about all you can say. Now, you and I would consider that rather humorous. That does not explain what distinguishes you and me from an animal. That won't do it. You could add many others to that. There are those who wrestle on the basis of consciousness and alertness. I thought it perhaps more a waste of our time to even include those definitions. That's not our interest tonight. Our interest is, according to this book, what is a human being? What is man that thou art mindful of him? I might suggest as you keep your finger in that place in Psalm chapter 8, we will look in just a moment at yet another particular verse, and it will in fact provide us the answer. And then we'll use the rest of our lesson to develop from that verse. May I say at the bottom of that slide, though, a statement that comes as no shock. If we, at the very outset, refuse to consider the declaration of this book we will never be able to assert the answer to this question. Man, by his own capability and by his own degree of knowledge, by the wisdom which he himself is willing only to admit if you exclude God from the equation, 
and exclude the Word of God from the declarations, you will never have a clear sense of what man is. And for that reason, we're going to turn to the Word of God. The next slide will begin our journey. And do so, that's just a random picture I selected. Every one of those people is a human being. Every one of them is different from an animal. Every one of them has certain characteristics that make that individual something exceedingly valuable in the sight of God and something that is certainly worthwhile from the standpoint of all eternity. At this point, why don't we give some thought to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In just a moment, we will in fact devote a rather interesting consideration to verse 23 of that chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. As you're turning to that location, let me make a few comments relative to some of the earlier features that you may well notice on that slide before us. And I'll use that to develop the question John read just a moment ago. What is man? Now David penned that psalm roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born, so roughly a thousand B.C., and yet, as David made that statement, you and I realize that the degree of medical knowledge, the degree of scientific inquiry, the degree of direct appreciation about matters such as it likely would have led many to suppose very little in light of answer. And yet, here was an inspired writer who, in the midst of all of it, said this, as he contemplated the grandeur of the universe, the sun and the stars, the various aspects in verse 3 of the magnificence of this universe, and yet in the midst of all of it, something is grander. May we never lose sight the human being, as great as the universe is, the human being is greater still. As fantastic and phenomenal and utterly amazing as this universe is, and anybody who gives it thought would have to agree that it is, the human being is grander still. You and I are more fantastic. The human being is more remarkable, more phenomenal. Now, that being said, notice it says, Thou art mindful of Him. Perhaps there could be an entirely new lesson based upon that point that we won't develop tonight. In the midst of this great universe, each individual person, God is mindful of each of us. He knows our circumstances. He appreciates the matters we face. He's understanding of the difficulties that come our way, and He's mindful of us. That carries the thought of compassionate, caring, and interested. God cares about each of us. He loves us to the point that He allowed His Son to die for us. But that still isn't going to be our answer tonight because that, again, is just a side point. Perhaps note this. It's time to come to 1 Thessalonians 5. In the 23rd verse of that chapter, as we come near the close of that 1 Thessalonian letter, Paul, in fact, drew to a remarkable conclusion some statements that will answer our question. Perhaps you and I are well familiar with, we use that chapter quite often for the rather quick and powerful set of ideas that it includes. Short statements that are so meaningful. However, verse 23 reads like this, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body 
be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To that church at Thessalonica, Paul made observation that it was his earnest desire that the God of peace would sanctify them wholly. Now, you may note that's W-H-O-L-L-Y. That means entirely, completely, thoroughly, and fully. It was Paul's desire that that congregation be enriched and enlightened and that in every aspect and way they would be sanctified to service in God. But then he added this, And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body would be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord. He made mention of three things. There's body, there's spirit, and there's soul. Let's give some consideration to that threefold composition of the human being tonight. And that, in fact, is the title I gave to that slide. At that point, that immediately, of course, brings before us this interesting thought. So if it is the case, and Paul said that it was, that a human being involves three things. In one attribute, there is body. And yet something distinct, Paul mentioned spirit. And yet distinct from that, he made reference to soul. One by one, as all three of them are listed, you might take note that at least for that part of the verse, there's none of that that's in italics. The translators did not supply it. Paul listed all three of them. With that point in mind, I would submit that at least on occasion, you and I may in fact wonder, are soul and spirit the same thing? Could it perhaps be imagined that they are in some sense simply two coins or two sides of the same thing? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, this additional statement is found that seems to answer that rather clearly. That's one of the better known verses probably in the Hebrew letter. And the writer simply pointed out that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Isn't it true then on that occasion that the inspired writer asserted that there is a mechanism and an understanding whereby there is a dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That means there is a sense in which they're distinct. There is a sense in which they're different. And thus you and I ought to be careful of simply using them always as if they are identically the same thing. We'll study that more later in the lesson tonight. At this point, as we at least come to that statement, let me highlight two of the words found in Hebrews 4 verse 12. Again, as I just noted that a moment ago, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That word piercing is the Greek word dikneomai. And as you can see, by definition, it means to go through, to penetrate, to pierce. And that word is thus used to identify that which can be distinguished or separated as a result of being drawn asunder, or shall we say separated by something penetrating between them. But on the other hand, that phrase dividing asunder... In Greek, that comes from one word, marismos. It literally means a division or a partition. The inspired writer pointed out then that there's something to be understood and appreciated about spirit versus soul. 
a partition, a division, if you please, by which they are not identically, at least always the same. As you and I close that slide, it has led us then to appreciate this. This isn't the only time in the Word of God when particular understandings of distinction along that line are highlighted. In 3 John verse number 2, the inspired writer pointed out how sweet it was to consider that distinction between spiritual on the one hand and physical on the other. And Paul pointed out something identical in 2 Corinthians 7 1. I suppose that perhaps that's enough background to at least motivate us to give some thought to all three of these attributes that now are to follow. Let's do that as we look first at the body. The next slide. Cast a spotlight then on that word body as Paul references it in 1 Thessalonians 5. He again prayed that your body, your spirit, and your soul might be blameless, preserved at least, until, of course, the second coming of Christ. The body. You and I know very well what Paul's emphasis with that will be, but the Greek word is soma, and it literally means body, just as you and I easily understand it. One of the contributions, one, if you please, of the compositions of the human frame is this body that you and I see, this physical body that we have been given by God. Look at a few of the features about that body. First of all, the Bible informs us much about its composition. That is to say, it's made of the same elements as dirt is made of. It's made of exactly the same ones. Didn't God say that to Adam? In Genesis chapter 3, For out of the dust wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now that by no means is being overly morbid. That's just a quotation from Genesis 3.19. It is an affirmation that the body that is what you and I recognize and see, although we may give it the emphasis as being the major part of the human being, it isn't. As we're about to learn later tonight, we're blessed to have bodies, of course, but it's only one part of three. Look at some of the additional features of that body. It has a form. It has the elemental constituents that God designed it to have. You and I understand the sweetness, the remarkable characteristic symmetry and beauty that is characteristic of the human body. You and I know well, you can basically divide it down the midst and there's a left half and a right half that are mere images of each other, at least on the outside. It is not that way on the inside. You only have one heart, for example, and it's on the left side of your body. But isn't it interesting that as all of those organs and those interior features are presented, look at this verse. The word form that is used in the Bible for instance, in Genesis 2, verse 7, what was it God there on that occasion said? Did He not speak of it this way? Of the dust of the ground. The form that was given to that particular body. It was highlighted on that occasion, and the word form is specifically utilized. That word form carries with it this idea. It means to do what a potter does to a lump of clay. In other words, a potter can take this lump, this shapeless mold of clay, and shape it into whatever he wishes it to be. Perhaps a plate, a saucer, a vase, 
whatever else he has in mind. It's that same word that carries with it the sense of what God has fashioned relative to the human body. God gave it the attributes and the form that He intended it to have. We are not the product of genetic variations and mutations over multiplied thousands of years. God gave it the form that He wished it to have. In addition to that, note this. What a wonderful consideration then there is as you give thought to the placement of the organs within it. Many times those in the scientific community have stumbled over this. Why is your heart on the left and not the right? Why are the kidneys where they are? Why is the pancreas located where it is? Medical science has offered some interesting considerations. But you and I can turn to Psalm 139 and note this. In the 14th verse of that chapter, we read this rather phenomenal statement. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And in the context, it's clear that David is having reference to the nature of the human body and its features that comprise it both internally and externally. God gave each of the organs their task, their function, their placement, and it is a marvelous composition. The human body is truly a marvel, isn't it? To that we might add this. In Proverbs 20, verse number 12, a briefer listing, but there highlighting some of the features of the eyes as well as the features of the ears, pointing out one more time the work that God did it. The ear and the eye, among all the others, they didn't just develop as the answer to the environment. May I say that near the bottom of that slide, we've already highlighted it, but it's worthwhile noting it again. This body isn't, isn't eternal, of course. In the flesh, it's not going to last perpetually. Just as God told Adam, you're going to return to the dust of which you're made. And that has been the sentence of everyone since, excepting Elijah and Enoch. One of them translated, the other in a whirlwind taken to the life beyond this one. But isn't it true? As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And that body at that point begins its decay. It begins its deterioration. Many verses might be added to that listing. Job knew it. It's a rather graphic description, I confess, but didn't he say in Job 19 that worms would eat that body? And that's going to be the tr true of each of us as well. But yet that feature, that attribute of that body, doesn't it remind us the marvelous truth that there were two other elements of that description? What about the spirit and what about the soul? Having given some reflection to the body, why don't we turn our attention to them? In doing that, let's proceed to the Spirit next. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, as Paul made reference to this composition of a human being, he highlighted the Spirit. What is the Spirit of man? What is it that the Bible refers to when it makes reference to this? Well, may I offer some of the thoughts on this slide. First, the Greek word is pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A, 
And as you encounter that word in the New Testament, at least if you're familiar with the King James translation, it occurs so very often because every time you see Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, the second word in that list is pneuma. So clearly, there is a Holy Spirit. And yet that same word pneuma, without the prefix holy or without the first word, is used to describe a composition of humanity as well. You and I are a pneuma. What does that mean? It has reference to the vital principle by which the body is animated. That vital principle, that force, if you please, that gives life to the body. We just learned a moment ago about the body. Isn't it true that God fashioned a body, but then He did something unique. He breathed into it the breath of life, and man became a living spirit. Notice, God could have fashioned a body, but at that point the body was still lifeless. He had to breathe something into it to animate it. May I suggest that He breathed the element of spirit within it. And thus, as you and I are such that we enjoy the things that we do, this body has life within it, as certainly as does yours, of course. It's the Spirit that animates it. It's the Spirit that gives it life. Look at some of these additional thoughts. The Old Testament word in Hebrew that's used to identify that thought is rock, R-U-A-C-H. And you may notice that as that word is utilized on so many Old Testament occasions, then the significance of it brings us to note these beautiful ideas. That spirit of man, I'm reminded of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 1. Although we're much later in the Old Testament, isn't it fantastic what it was that the prophet Zechariah asserted as God spoke through him? He said that it is the Spirit of God that formeth the spirit of man within him. Note that with me again. It is God that formeth the spirit of man within him. The spirit that is in you and I, the spirit that is you and I, it wasn't given to us by our parents. It wasn't given to us by, let's say, our grandparents or other family members. It was bequeathed to us at the point of conception in our mother's womb by none other than the God of heaven Himself. It's the God of heaven that provides, gives, asserts that spirit. Isn't that a remarkable thought later in Hebrews 12? God is there called the Father of our spirits. One more time, a reminder that God is the originator of life. It is He who provides us, gives us the nature of that spirit. As all of those verses are highlighted, might we add a few more to them? Jesus said it like this in John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our God, He is a spirit. He doesn't have a body the way you and I do. He is fully, in essence, spirit. Now, later on in Luke 24, 39, we're told that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. And therefore, again, at this point in the heavenly realm, he doesn't possess a body the way that you and I have one. He is spirit. 
that was the basis upon which the Lord asserted then that all that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. But doesn't that remind us or at least give us a glimpse of what the future existence shall be? When you and I lay this old body aside and we transition into the life beyond this one, we'll not have this body anymore in flesh, but we still will be in spirit. And in that sense, we shall be able to enjoy the fullness of that realm beyond this one. We won't be limited by the nature of this body. Let's add to that the following. The angels were told are spirits, Hebrews 1.14. So at this very moment, again, in that realm beyond this one, the angels in their existence, they too do not have bodies like we do. They are spirit. I hope by now we gain the essence or the appreciation that to say that you and I are spirits, it is that vital principle that God has utilized to invigorate and animate these bodies at the most basic level, you and I are spirits. It just so happens that spirit dwells within this body for a little while, for some number of years until, of course, we pass from this life. You'll note near the bottom of that slide, James 2.26 offers an unanswerable consideration to this point. In the midst of that discussion, wherein James is discussing faith and works, he had this interesting statement. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so too faith without works is dead. Now, although he was using that as a tremendous teaching concerning the harmony of faith and works, he used it to teach us something. At the moment that the spirit departs the body, the body is left lifeless and it is said to be dead. When you and I visit the funeral home, we see a body. The Spirit is no longer there. The Spirit has already taken its residence elsewhere. The Spirit's not there anymore. That's why the body is the way it is. It's dead. You see, when you've taken out the Spirit, the Spirit's what gave it life. The Spirit is what animated the body. And once the Spirit's not there, the body's dead. May I say that there are so many in our world who, as I noted at the outset of the lesson, turn to evolution or turn to psychology or so many other sources. And if that's absent, the appreciation of man will never be consistent with the Word of God. One last thing on that slide. So far we've mentioned on many occasions this spirit. As far as the Word of God ever describes it, we must add this thought. Spirits do not die. Spirits are immortal. Again, at the moment God creates that spirit and invests it into that little body, growing in the womb of that mother, from that point forward, that spirit will never, ever cease to be. Now, for a while, it, it of course, is in, inside a physical body, but once that body dies... Once the Spirit has gone elsewhere, the Bible never says the Spirit dies. It merely transitions to dwell somewhere else. The Bible will call that Hades. And then ultimately after the day of judgment, either in heaven or in hell. But it is never ever said to die. No wonder in that light how critical it is that we appreciate what man is. I know that there are many through the ages 
who have asserted that man is this physical thing and he's here for a while, but when he dies, it's all over. There's just nothingness after that. But that's not so. That's completely false. There is life beyond this grave. And you and I understand so well that the Spirit is the critical entity that shall experience it. In closing that slide, it does then bring us to note so beautifully a host of verses. Without calling all of them to your attention, could I direct you to Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Stephen was in the process of being stoned to death. He looked up and something is said about the nature of spirit and how sweet it is to notice he looked the realms beyond this one and saw Jesus, the Son of God. And you'll notice it says his spirit took up and then dwelled elsewhere. Wasn't that said of Abraham too? And wasn't it also said of Jacob and even of Isaac? As we close that slide, we've learned so far about the body and the spirit. One more to go. What then is the soul? This next slide will develop that point and do so with an effort to help us consider what Paul meant when he referred to those three in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. First, the Greek word that's translated soul is suke, P-S-U-C-H-E, and it has a rather broad appreciation in terms of usage in the Bible. And that likely is what makes it such a challenging thing. I hope to sort out a few of those things over the next couple of minutes with you. But again, take note of this interesting thought with me. As you look at the various verses that use the word soul, it is used in a variety of usages. And we'll have to take careful note of what some of those usages are so that we can correctly use it as the Bible does. First of all, let's begin like this. The Hebrew word, again, that's translated soul on so many occasions is the word nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H. And in all the utilities in which that particular set of words occurs, we might well begin like this. Every reference I was able to find attaches to this concept of soul the essence of breathing. What it is that is capable of breathing and is breathing is said to possess this thing called a soul. Now, you and I know well the idea of breathing is then hand-in-hand with an animated body. If you and I stop breathing, we won't be alive very long. If something constricts our airway, or if something causes us to shut down breathing, unless there's some mechanical means to make that continue on for a while, we'll very soon, of course, die. But it's interesting that that connection to breathing is used on so many occasions relative to the discussion of life. Let's develop a few of them. First of all, there are occasions when the word soul seems to be identical to merely a person, a human being. For instance, the New Testament says eight souls were saved by water. We know that's just a reference again to the days of Noah. Noah, his wife, the three sons and their three wives, eight persons were saved from water by the nature, of course, of the ark. Well, again, the writer of the New Testament just simply asserted that there were eight souls saved by water. Eight individuals, eight persons. But there's other senses in which the word isn't simply a substitute for a person. It means something quite different. 
It can refer, as you can see near the bottom of that slide, to the basic matter of life exhibited in the reality of breathing. Look at a few of these examples. May I say to you that at least in that connection, not only do human beings, but also on a few occasions, animals were highlighted using that word. Now we know an animal breathes. A dog breathes, a horse, a cow. No, they breathe. They have lungs. In that sense, that attribute is connected to them by, again, that Hebrew word. Look at some of these verses. In Genesis 1, verse 21, what did it say on that occasion? Now, that was before man was created. It says, And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And yet in that connection, the underlying Hebrew word is the same one that is connected to soul in these other places. And there again, it was clearly animals. Please understand, we are not asserting in any way that there is an eternal part to an animal. It's just the word soul is being used in a way that relates it to this attribute of breathing, this reality of having breath. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 20, in the New Testament, look at what is stated on that occasion about th this very matter before us. Early in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 20. Saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. The Greek word that rests behind that is such that, again, it has to do with soul. And yet, it was said here that... Again, Joseph needed to take the babe and Mary and go into a place in which they'd be able to remain until those who actually sought such would in fact pass on. Let's add to that the following. When the word soul is used in that way, note Psalm 78 verse number 50. You might at least at this point be shocked at what we're able to read in that verse. Psalm 78 verse number 50. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence. The reason that could appear problematic at first sight is, doesn't that say souls die? Well, it did say that souls, in fact, are led to and, and become those that experience death. But notice that's not the same as the spirit, as the word soul is being used in that context. It is referring only to that element related to breathing. And it's only in that sense. May you and I never think that the Spirit's going to die or that it shall cease to be because that's not what Psalm 78.50 is teaching. We may even add some more to that thought. There are other verses that connect this word soul to the seat of intelligence, to the sense of being able to have feelings and to reach conclusions based on those feelings. For example, in Mark 12, verse number 30, what was it that Jesus said? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. In what sense is the Lord using the word soul there? I'm supposed to love God with all of this. 
He's referring to the seat of intelligence, the seat of one's essence, your thinking capabilities, the reason, deductive capabilities we each enjoy. We're to use them to pursue and love the God of heaven. To that we might add Luke 2.35. Early on in that book of Luke, getting it an interesting reference there where that word is used in the following interesting way. Luke chapter 2, verse number 30. I'm sorry, verse number 35. Yea, a soul shall pierce through thine own soul also. Now there, a soul is going to be pierced with a sword? How can that be? After our study tonight, we now know what was under description by the circumstances. There's going to be a great mental anguish. A great mental agitation is going to happen as a result of connection with Christ. We're going to be hated by a lot of people because they don't see things the way we do. That's what the word soul refers to there, the seat of feeling and intelligence. But perhaps we can also say this. It's clear that there are some passages in which the Holy Scriptures, in an abbreviated way, do not take the time to distinguish the spirit and the soul, and the word soul is used interchangeably for the spirit. Because sometimes it is said that the soul is immortal. It's eternal. Look at some of these verses. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, The very hairs of your head are numbered. And in that same context, He identified, Fear not them which can kill the body, but have nothing they can do to the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now there, Jesus, it seems clearly, was using the word soul as if it's referring to spirit. This immortal thing that will never die, it will never cease to be. And He said, fear Him who is able to send that into hell. Look at another one in Acts 2.27. On that majestic day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching in such a dramatic way, isn't it interesting what he said in verse 27 as he referred to the soul? He wrote it and said it like this, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Now what is it that goes to hell? Is it the brain? Is it the anything that's physical? Of course not. What is beyond this world? This physical body is not suited to inhabit. What Peter was speaking about there is he was referring to that eternal part, and again, it would be identical to what we'd call the Spirit. That is what it goes to the realm beyond this one. That is what will either enjoy the marvels of heaven or the excruciating agony of hell. With that said, let's close that slide. May I say then, when we encounter the word soul in the Bible... It's important to let the context give us a guide as to which one of these particular usages is being referred to by the word soul. Is it the seat of one's thought? Is it being used synonymously with spirit? Is it merely referring to a person? And we'll have to let the context be the guide as we properly interpret the word soul in those places. For that reason, I tend to try to use the word spirit when I refer to that eternal, immortal part of a person, because the Bible consistently always uses that one, and there seems to be less misunderstanding concerning it. Let's close our lesson then like this. 
the composition of human beings, what a thrilling subject. I hope that we can recall 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that refers to the body and the spirit and the soul, and we can at least now see that there's some interesting things to be noted by all three of them. Not the least of which is this body that you and I see. We certainly should appreciate it and care for it, but mustn't we realize it is not the fullness of a human being. But in addition to that, there is this immortal spirit, the vital animating object to the body. It is what in fact has an essence like God. God's a spirit and in that sense you and I are as well. Oh, how marvelous it's going to be when we, like He, can be in His presence in spirit form and enjoy His spirit form throughout all the ceaseless ages of eternity. And then there's the soul that we've discussed as well. Trying to understand the variety of ways in which that word is utilized in the Word of God. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope that we've each been reminded that God's Word is always right. And as far as what is man... We've at least learned spirit, body, and soul. This evening, if perhaps there's anyone in the audience that would wish to make a response to the gospel's call of invitation, we would wish to make that opportunity available, understanding that it is God's call, not ours. He calls us by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. This evening, if you'd wish to become a Christian, we could assist you with that in just a few moments. If you have become a Christian but you haven't been faithful. Maybe in your body and thus in your spirit, you have become disgraceful in activity relative to the church or relative to the other things God has revealed. Why don't you make that right tonight? The Lord calls you back to His side in faithfulness, and if we could assist by praying to God on your behalf, we'd be happy and delighted to do it. If we could help in any way tonight, let us know the way we can do that while together we stand and while we sing.